Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back. I say welcome back. I don't know why I'm saying welcome back, but I feel like saying it because you are listening to another episode of Industry Standard. I hope you've come back uh, to listen, uh, and this is one of the ones you've come back to listen to. And if this is your first time listener, welcome. This is uh, a place for you to hang out, have fun, learn a little bit about life, learn a little bit about the business, get a few laughs, and... uh, and trash me afterwards. That's how that's how it works here. Um, thank you again for everything. Uh, I'll keep saying thank you until uh, they put me away inside the piano box uh, uh, because uh, I just uh, I just feel like you guys are are uh, been unbelievable. The letters, uh, it, I just can't. It's incredible. I've gotten certain letters and emails recently of people who uh, you know uh, started their own podcast because of listening to this. People who uh, got their dream job because they applied certain things that uh, certain guests talked about on how to get to the next level. Um, so it's you know it's it's really exciting, and uh, I never actually I take that back. I did dream of having it uh, work like this, and uh, you know I remember those lotto commercials from so long ago in Massachusetts. All you need is a dollar and a dream, and. Thankfully, our producers are working for a dollar, and I have a dream. So uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to indicate that I actually increased your salary by 100%. Uh, <laughs> so uh, normally, I like to start these podcasts off with a cold open. It's sort of um, 
as a six degrees of separation to my guest today, which is Mark Cronin, one of the most successful reality producers of my or any generation. Uh, and he's done it his way. He is the Frank Sinatra of reality television producers, but with not as nice blue eyes as Frank. Anyway, so here is uh, my story. I known of Mark, you know, of doing a few things here and there. He was getting into the reality business, and we'll talk about what he did beforehand. Uh, he cut his teeth uh, around a guy who is one of the few guys in our business that we could consider a genius. Uh, who works in front of, behind, and around the mic and camera, and that was Howard Stern. And um, when you work with Howard, it's a fascinating thing because a lot of people think that the great people surround themselves with people who are the strongest people in the world. And, but there are certain artists, if you're an artist and you're building your team and you're an executive producer and you're an owner of what you do, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you surround yourself with people who are friends. Sometimes you surround yourself with people that would never, ever be able to get that job in any other capacity, but you believe in them. And through time in your show as you if they are people that hit the mic and don't hit the mic, you use them to make laughs, to make entertainment. And that's part of the drama and the conflict of whatever you do on television or radio when you're doing sort of a reality-based thing. And so my guest today was involved in that team, but he was one of the guys that wasn't one of those guys. Yet he was working with a bunch of guys, many of them still there, who probably still might not get a job in the business in that area. But because they work so well with Howard and they had such chemistry with Howard, um, it works. It's the same if you listen to, like, Jay Moore's radio show, Moore Sports, Jay Moore Sports on Fox Radio in the mornings. You'll find this eclectic group of people like the technical producer who he calls ghost hands because the guy just never seems to get a cue on time or anything of that nature. But who, you know, behind the scenes, once they get the things done the way he wants them to do, it's great. But it's the level of the up and down that that makes it so fascinating. And what always intrigued me about Mark Cronin was the fact that he was a part of this team in the madness of all these unique personalities, he was almost like the Jerry Seinfeld or the Judd Hirsch in Taxi. You know, he was the guy, he was there, he was like a rock, he was a normal, regular guy amongst madness and craziness. And and what he saw, in my humble opinion, as he was working, when he was working in this environment, he saw a reality show unfolding before his eyes with different characters, yet he was living it and working it, and it wasn't always recorded on television until a little bit later when he went to the Channel 9 show. But before that, it wasn't being recorded, and he was living it. And even when it was recorded, Channel 9 was the earliest, WWOR was the earliest versions of, of, of television. You really, you know... 
didn't really understand what was going on. It was, you know, Howard Stern and then one channel, you look at Robin Bird and a G-string interviewing Al Goldman and you're like, okay, this is Channel 9. And then you look at uh, Joe Franklin on a talk show in his 37th year being propped up by pillows. But the point I'm trying to make is that he saw something and I believe that that was the foundation for what he's doing today and what he's been doing in the past 10 years. But about 10 years ago, I was fortunate enough to catch Mark in the beginnings of his career. And uh, I loved his energy. He was so talent friendly. And uh, there was a guy I worked with who you might know, our audience might know, he has a great podcast. Uh, his name is Bert Kreischer. And I met Bert in New York. He'd come to New York from Florida, and he, there'd just been an article written about him in Rolling Stone magazine that he was the number one party animal in the country. And he'd come to New York to do comedy because he went up at one comedy show where there were professionals, had nothing planned, got a standing ovation, and literally blew them off the stage and thought, I can do comedy. And he showed up at the door of my comedy club, and like I always do sometimes without even thinking, I say, okay, you want to pass out some flyers, you want to do the door, you want to do whatever, I'll put you on. And he came in, and he went on stage, and he got a standing ovation, or a partial standing ovation on one of the shows. And it was unbelievable. It was like a stream of consciousness kind of comedy that the other comics really didn't understand what was going on. I don't think they necessarily respected him tremendously because his material wasn't like Chris Rock or somebody like that. But they did respect the fact that he was doing it. He was making it happen. And he was blowing these audiences away. And later on, believe it or not, I, you know, he had only been on stage 50 times and I showcased him for David Tochterman who worked for Overbrook and Will Smith and, and James Lassiter. And David loved what he did. I put him on a Saturday night, the first Saturday night I ever put him on in front of an audience. He killed it. They made a deal for him. They paid him six figures. And within three months, I'm in rooms. I'm in network president's office with Will Smith and Burt Kreischer pitching a television show that was bought by Doug Herzog who when he was at Fox. And Burt was this guy that was just you you just it was infectious. And Mark saw this about Burt and we developed the television show a reality television concept that I believe the intention for um, Mark after uh, um, his successes was to get something going at FX, which was starting a new initiative, which was more, you know, doing a little more stuff outside the box, trying to figure out what they were doing. And the brilliant idea that uh, Bert uh, and Mark came up with, I think Bert came up with and sort of sold Mark on it. I don't know how he sold Mark on it because I don't know how anybody in the history of television could ever do a show like this again. It was called Hurt Bert. And the whole concept of the show was to put Bert Kreischer in situations that no other human being would be put in. 
and have him get the shit kicked out of him. That was basically the premise. So we went, you go in and pitch a show, literally, if you ever want to pitch a show successfully, have a pitch that you can pitch in one sentence, and chances are you might have a shot of turning that no into a yes. And Mark, with his relationship with FX, uh, they liked the idea, and they got a budget together, and we got an order, believe it or not, I think we only got an order for initially of three episodes, and which turned into interstitial stuff. And off Mark and his team went with Bert Kreischer to put him in these situations without any padding, without any protective gear. So where was Bert? You know, I think one of the first things I remember is Bert was on a football field playing quarterback against professional style and college style defensive players who were like 300 pounds. And their goal was to sandwich Bert and just crush him like a bug. And they succeeded. And every time Bert would get up and do it again until Mark or somebody on his team said, cut, we got what we need. Let's go to the next thing. And one of our biggest memories was the concept of Bert being a rodeo clown with real bulls, real rodeo, real danger. And um, it wasn't bad enough that Bert was probably concussed about seven times, and that's probably the reason why he is the way he is today. But he went and he did the rodeo clown thing, and of course, what happened? He wasn't trained properly, and, you know, he was trampled and injured. And had to take some time off. But even after he was injured, if I'm not mistaken, there was still more to be shot. And Bert Kreischer got up and he said, we're going to finish this until we get what we want. And he gave everything he had, even though he was really injured. I think he'd broken some ribs. I think he had, uh, you know, <laughs> bruises all over his head. I think he had to go to the hospital for and something happened to his leg as well, where I think he twisted an ankle or did something. But he still kept going hurt until they got the shot, until Mark and his team got everything that they needed. And the show was unbelievably hilarious. It was fantastic. It was, you couldn't stop watching it. But unfortunately, the network only decided to use it as interstitials, and they didn't end up doing it as a television series. But I think the thing I took from it, and anybody who's listening can take a number of different things from this. You can talk about the stupidity of the stupidity of doing something as an artist that's so risky and so dangerous that you could lose your life. You could talk about the uh, bad judgment of producers to put and a manager to put an artist in that kind of situation and you can think, okay, that's risky. That's a, that's not a really great thing to do. But I think the thing is that you realize when you really believe in yourself as a producer and when you really believe in yourself as an artist, 
you're going to do everything you can for the common good as a team of that production to make sure that it's the best it possibly can be and that you're represented as the best representation of who you can be. And yes, it was dangerous and yes, it was risky, but it was one of those times where I had so much respect for Mark and his team. And I had so much respect for Bert to keep going and going and going until he got the shot. And it let me know that one of the qualities that if you're going to get anywhere as anybody in any business is you have to take risks. You have to do things that will create those holy shit moments. And if you feel in any profession you're in, especially as an actor, if you're making an audition tape or if you're doing anything and you don't feel like you have it right 100%, you need to keep doing it over and over again until you get it perfect. And that's the only time that anyone should ever see your work. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just... I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally he traveled to LA and he said, you know, I got to meet you. So I met the guy and, uh, I sat down and he told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll 
make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued. So I went online and I did some research and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or 135 k a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com. Schedule a live demo on their system. Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very excited today. This is so exciting. I This is a guy that I, you know, normally... I don't really have too many people involved in the non-scripted reality space. And I get a lot of requests for people in this space. And I thought I wanted to reach out to this man, Mark Cronin, who I'm about to introduce to do this because this guy is the, you talk about the American dream and you talk about starting in a certain place and working your way through this is what this guy has done. I mean, like these podcasts are all about the journey and I know a lot of people listen and I just want to say this perception isn't always reality. Everybody you meet in this business, you might think that they're millionaires or that they're doing this or that, or they're successful or they have that or whatever. And at every point in their life, there's something that happened where it's not the way it is and it's not the way it actually seems and, you know, I always think that way, like when I'm up here and I'm doing these podcasts and people come here and they think, you oh, God, look at the space and whatever. It's nice, whatever. You know, I, I know what I go through personally. I know what I go through professionally. And I just I know the journey that I made and how far I still need to come and how much I want to do that I haven't done yet. And I always say that I sometimes I feel like an anorexic you know, looking in the mirror and saying I'm fat because I think people think sometimes that I might be doing something when I'm really have so much farther to go. And I want you all to know that these podcasts are for you guys to see those journeys. And this guy's journey is quite amazing. Uh, Mark Cronin started as a comedy writer for Howard Stern. I believe only one of two comedy writers to start off with comedy with Howard Stern. And then from there, he started working on his bigger productions, his Channel 9 show. He was a part of the largest pay-per-view non-sports event in history, the New Year's Rotten Eve special. Uh, he also uh, segued from there into MTV, where he became a writer-producer on the show Singled Out and eventually went on to run the show 
and uh, during its highest rated years with Jenny McCarthy and Chris Hardwick. He went on to create over 35 reality TV series, 22 of which went to multiple seasons and several of which can be said to have been major hits for their respective networks. His best-known series include Beat the Geeks for Comedy Central, The Surreal Life for VH1, My Fair Brady for VH1, Flavor of Love also for VH1, as well as Rock of Love, Mind of a Man at GSN, and Below Deck at Bravo. In 2008, he sold a part of his company, 51 Minds, to the largest production company in history, Endemol, and throughout the last five years has sold bits and pieces until he's finally sold the final piece of his company to Endemol USA. Recently, he founded his own company called Little Wooden Boat Productions. Again, I'd love to know the second choice, which continues his quest for the most original, funniest, and biggest reality TV hits of all time. Please welcome my guest today, Mark Cronin. Thank you, Barry. All right. <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, well, yeah. uh, we haven't even done anything yet. I know. I just want to listen to you. I just want to sit here and <laughs> I just want you to keep going. I, I feel like if I get involved, it's not going to be as good. <laughs> Sadly, there's three producers in front of me that don't feel that way. <laughs> uh, what I love to do is I love to start at the beginning, if you don't mind. So this is like sort of a multi-part question, but take me back to wherever it was a month or a year before you ever had a thought in your mind of being in the entertainment business. Where were you? Where'd you grow up? Was it tough? Were you like from a, there's a good family environment. Was it hard? Like how did it all come about? And what was the first entrance that you said, Hey, I want to do this. Well, I mean, it goes all the way back to when I was a kid, and I think my parents overly encouraged me to uh, stand in front of everybody and make a fool of myself. Uh, they used to love it when I would come down with my underwear on my head and pretend that I was a scuba diver. I hope you had other underwear. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, they would encourage me to, you know, I, I think they were, I was just in a family that was um, all about letting me uh, perform a lot. And uh, so I always, you know, it comes from your family. And I, I did not have a rough childhood. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. My parents were teachers. Um, they did instill in me, though, along with this encouragement for performance and comedy, they also instilled in me this kind of they were teachers, but they had kind of a blue collar mentality. They were actually, you know, union teachers and, and they, they had this idea that, you know, you went into the world and you made a living, you, you had to make money and you had to find a career that was going to be, um, you know, one where you, you're making a salary and maybe get benefits and these kinds of things. I can remember those kinds of things being important from an early age. And the dilemma for me was, as I was growing up and trying to figure out what to do with my life through high school and college, was that that never left me that need to go into something very stable, very, you know, something with a guarantee that you'll have a job. And um, and so despite the fact that extracurricularly I would be in the plays at school or I would be part of the summer stage that uh, Tina Fey writes about or um, I did lots of stuff, but I never looked at it as a way to live your life. I always thought it was just a hobby and that what I really needed to do was be something um, with a salary. And so um, because I had, <clears throat> I kind of had the ability to do it. I had a kind of a math science 
um, brain or a piece of my brain was a math science brain. Um, I went into engineering and I, um, I went to college for chemical engineering and I have a chemical engineering degree and I graduated as a chemical engineer and went into work as a uh, chemical engineer simply because I believe that that was a normal thing to do. And that if I tried to pursue any kind of acting or writing or songwriting or anything in the entertainment industry that I would starve. I felt that it was a it was a too scary a thing to step out into that world, um, and I didn't believe it was a meritocracy. I felt that if you were good, you might not make it, um, and so I felt like I, why why even get into that at all? And so even though in college I did both, you know, I was I had my major as an engineer. I also spent a lot of time in a, a comedy troupe, an all male comedy troupe at my school. I went to Penn in Philadelphia, and we have this all-male group called Mask and Wig. It's kind of analogous to Harvard's Hasty Pudding Club. It's like an old, like founded in the 1800s, all-male. So of course we had to wear dresses and stuff when we were playing females. And we had to wear the dresses, Barry. It was, <laughs> it was important. Was that, uh, is that, is that legal that you can't have women in a club? Well, it's a private club inside the university. We don't take funding from the university. So we're able to continue as an all-male, all-male group. Did you ever get the, the, did the women ever protest or boycott the group? Yes, uh, they went on to uh, the women at the school at that time. This was in the 80s that I was there. They founded a, a, a counter group called Bloomers that's still there. And so there's an all male comedy troupe and an all female comedy troupe at Penn. Um, and both have, you know, pretty storied alumni and uh, are doing really well. And uh, I think it's I think it's great. I think it's OK. Who are some of the why. storied alumni? Uh, well, besides yourself, of course. <laughs> well, uh, Lou Schneider, who is a, a Lou is one of the greatest yeah, guys he, in the world. He ran a number of different television shows, also starred as an actor in a few of them. Uh, some of the shows he worked on, I believe he was an executive producer on everybody loves Raymond. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Yes. And he's, he's still working now. He's doing the, um, the Goldbergs on ABC with Jeff and, Garland. Yeah. Fantastic writer. I mean, it was a group that um, was intense. You know, we would, we would write our own original productions every year and put them on in a theater in Philadelphia, actually in downtown Philadelphia that was open to the college, but it was also open to the general public. So people would come from all over the city to come see this comedy show that these college boys are putting on. And, uh, we're proud of it. We, we thought we were writing really good sketch comedy. Although I, I go back and I look at some of those sketches, uh, both, uh, some video that I have and written. And I, I, I think we thought we were funnier than we we may really have been, but, but it was a great training ground for being a comedy writer or being just brave enough to pitch your ideas in a difficult room. Um, I learned a lot. Um, but I honestly, the whole time I didn't ever believe I was going to go that route. I thought as I watched the older kids graduate and go into the working world, I watched them move to New York and basically starve, um, you know, and, and live these horrible lives that you live right after college if you choose to go into the arts. <laughs> but don't let that deter you. Uh, it is rough at the start. It is rough uh, to make money in, at the start. And uh, I graduated as an engineer and I was making a big salary and I had a car and had a nice apartment in New York and I really thought I had it figured out. So you're in New York and just for our audience, for the sake of you know, this is 25, 30 years ago. What were you making a year as a chemical engineer at the time? In 1986, I believe I was making like, I graduated to like $40,000 a year. Got it. But in today's, I think today chemical engineers graduate to like 100000 a year or something, which is a great living for a 21 year old. Um, 
And so, and my friends who were, you know, tried to go into the arts, they were taking very low paying PA jobs or even internships, not getting paid. And, you know, they were helping, you know, load the audience in at remote control at MTV or something. And I thought I was so much smarter than them. I thought I really had it all figured out until I realized that uh, when you go into the working world, your work becomes your world and the people you associate with are now all your colleagues and you, there is no such thing as an extracurricular life in real life. And so you get sucked into your profession. And if you don't like your profession, which I never really liked, I didn't like chemical engineering. I didn't even like chemical engineers. Uh, and when my world became all engineering, uh, it very quickly emptied of any joy. And I was watching my friends who I thought I was smarter than who weren't making as much money as me, but they were having a great time. They worked at MTV or Nickelodeon, or they were interning at, you know, they were a page at NBC and, and they were meeting cool people and they had music in their offices and, and toys in their cubicles. And it just looked like a whole different life to me. And I just became completely miserable with engineering. And I promised myself that I would just get the hell out. It took me a long time, though. I, I worked as an engineer for five years. You know, it's interesting. When I first went into your office, yours was the first office in the entertainment world that I ever went into that was filled with those kind of things. It was like it was the kind of place that was like you were you were walking into like the entertainment Disney world. It had all these little tchotchkes of the world frame things, different things that was yeah. fun. Yeah. So it's so interesting that that's what you wanted and that's what you ended exactly. up with. All right. Keep going. All right. So I decided I had to get out. And um, I and by getting out, I mean I needed to get out of a um, non-creative job. I wanted to be in a creative job. And to me, I didn't care what it was as long as it was a creative job. So I, try, I took uh, some comedy writing lessons in New York. I tested to be a copywriter for J. Walter Thompson, the, the um, advertising company. I, uh, what did I do? I tried stand up. I, I tried everything. I tried every single thing I could think of that was a creative way to try and make money without quitting the job yet. Right. Without quitting the job. Cause I, that would be crazy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, eventually what happened was a friend of mine from Penn, uh, Amy Friedman, who's now at Noggin, the channel Noggin, she's, she does the programming there. Um, she was one of these low paid, you know, producers for, uh, Nick at night. They had a news break spoof they were doing in between their shows. It was called global village news. And they were soliciting writers from outside to send in news jokes, you know, little fake news, uh, news stories, um, as jokes. And they were paying, I believe it was, it was $75 for a half joke, whatever a half joke is. They would, they would do each interruption newscast was two jokes or one big long joke. And if you wrote half the podcast, you get you're the half of the newscast, you get $75. And if you wrote the whole thing, you got $150. So I would drive. To, she, so she, a friend of mine from bloomers, by the way, um, she uh, relationships, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. She was a, a friend and, and she, uh, offered me the chance to write these jokes and fax them in and they, you'd fax in 10 jokes and they might buy one or two maybe. And so every morning as I was driving to work as an engineer, I had a little tape recorder with me. And while I was stuck in traffic on the Long Island Expressway, I would 
talk jokes into this uh, little tape recorder. And then as soon as I got to work, the first thing I would do is type them all up and send them to Amy. And then they started buying them. By fax. Yeah, by fax. <laughs> Not so old that it was the kind of fax with the phone that goes into the cradle, uh-huh. but, but, but I would fax over these jokes. And so they started buying them. And, you know, at $75 and $150 a pop, eventually I was starting to make like, I don't know, $600 a week doing this. And it started to dawn on me that this was actually, I could actually make a living as a, as a creative and I should work harder at trying to get out of engineering. And so those first jokes that I sold started that re- the wheels really turning and I just went on an assault. Um, the, my attack in the New York area on trying to get into the entertainment business in my head, I just wanted to do something I was a fan of would be my first choice. And of course, I was a fan of Saturday Night Live. I was a fan of David Letterman. Um, you know, these are shows produced in New York. But there was a there was a problem for me with those places because they were very Harvard centric. They would uh, most of their writing staffs were Harvard writers. Um, and I felt I guess it was an inferiority complex coming from the University of Pennsylvania. We've always had a an inferiority complex over the other Ivy League schools. And so I felt, oh, those Harvard guys are never going to let in a pen kid. And I just kind of self-defeated myself on those. Um, Not that I didn't try, not that I didn't try to find a way to send material to Saturday Night Live and see if I could get hired. But um, there was this one show, this uh, show produced in Secaucus, New Jersey on WWOR that was completely underfunded, understaffed, you know, very low quality, you know, production value uh, being produced by Howard Stern, the radio guy. And and in those days, he was really only a New York radio guy. Um, And I was a fan of his. I, you know, I loved his show. I listened to it every morning. I was addicted to Howard Stern. And so I knew his sensibility and his sensibility wasn't too far from my sensibility. And I, I targeted that show as the most likely place not to be hiring a Harvard writer. <laughs> and I targeted it as a place that I could probably get them to pick up the phone. Whereas if you call over to NBC, you're never going to get anywhere. But if you call over to WWR, they'll connect you to the executive producer of the show. So I just went on this assault. This, this, they, had a, they had low defenses, I guess. And uh, I just kind of started this uh, campaign. And I would fax them uh, sketches written for their show. And I would go down, sometimes I'd even go down myself to the lobby and ask for the producer of the show so I could hand him my sketches that were unsolicited. You know, I was just hoping they would like them, maybe use one. I didn't even want to get paid for it. All I wanted was give me a job, Let, get, offer me a job, a full-time job so I can quit this job I'm in now. And persistence, so much persistence. Yes, it took months. It really did. You did for yeah. those of you who don't know the beginnings of Howard Stern, you want to know how... If you want to know how to judge an artist by how powerful and how amazing and how extraordinary they are, Howard Stern was a New York radio guy. Maybe the range of his show at best was 150 miles or 100 miles of the epicenter of New York City, yet he was getting guest shots on The Tonight Show. On Letterman, he was on national shows. They were having him on, yet only a small percentage of the country could get him. That's how much of an impact this guy made as an artist. Yeah, no, he was. I mean, my respect for his power as an artist, his genius, uh, is kind of boundless. I'm, you know, I was a fan as a listener, and then when I got inside the 
organization over there called loosely or an organization. Um, when I saw how he would, you know, the thing, the things I learned from Howard, I learned a lot, but some of them are, first of all, um, the purity of vision that, uh, one guy's vision needs to be defended in, especially in comedy. I, I feel like, uh, uh, if you let, if you let the committees and the executives, you know, really call the shots, then you're not going to make something great. If you want to make something great, you really have to fight for your vision. And he taught me a lot about that. He also taught me that popular is good that if you think that you're smarter than everybody else and that you're doing something that only a handful of people are going to understand because they're so much better than everybody else, you're probably going to fail. That uh, you want to make something that that makes a lot of people happy. Uh, we're in the mass entertainment business. And I, I believe that heartily. I believe that popular equals good in a lot of instances. Um, and that you're doing a good job if you're entertaining a big audience. And that Howard was highly driven by ratings. I mean, he, he would pour over the ratings of his radio show. Obviously, um, it was his measure of success. Am I, am I beating the other guys on the radio at the same time as me? And when he, he brought that to his television show where we would obsess over the ratings and we would look at the quarter hour, you know, did this sketch was not as popular as that sketch and why, and what are we doing? You know, how do we make more things that get high ratings and are we beating Saturday Night Live, which we actually started to do in the New York area. Our show, uh, the WWR show was on Saturday nights against Saturday Night Live and we would beat them. And then when Howard went on in Philadelphia, we started beating them in Philadelphia as well. And so it really was, it was, it was how Howard was taking his gratification. And I learned a lot from that. And I think that my obsession for popular hit television shows comes from that. And a lot of times, uh, not to dwell on Howard, but he'd do things that were, they were, they, they, they rendered his competition defenseless. He would do things <laughs> where no matter how creative you could possibly get to defend his assault, you couldn't figure out a way to defend it. Like when he came to LA here, <laughs> he had a funeral for Mark and Brian. <laughs> He actually went through the whole thing, you know, I mean, just this whole elaborate thing, this whole planned funeral with speeches and all this yeah. thing. And if you're Mark and Brian or you're anybody, think to yourself right now as you're listening to this, how you defend that and how you come across with a fun radio show to come back in any way at that moment during that time and try to do something relevant that makes people say, wow, that's cool. You really deflected that. <laughs> it was impossible. Impossible. And that's what Howard used to do with the pay-per-view things, you know, but bongo fiesta, you know, that was one of his most popular things where literally he would play bongos on women's asses. Yes. yes. <laughs> you cannot defend anything. You cannot. There's no way. I don't care if you're a woman, if you're a man, you might not share that you watched it. It's like shopping at Kmart. You know you do, but you shop in fear. Uh, you know, it's uh, as Don Gavin used to say in Boston, he used to say it's the only place in the world where the mannequins have the coats over their heads. But the point being is that Howard was indefensible. And, 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 and that's he why it was so successful. incredibly brave. But how did you get the gig there? You faxed, but producers don't want to see you win. 
they, they you know they're getting paid to write they're getting paid to do things they don't want to show somebody else that hey this guy faxed something in for free here you go the best joke you have today was free i get paid money every day but here you go like how did you get the them the how did you navigate to get them in to to be able to well do here's that? here's what the politics of that show at that time were that howard was on the air in new york in manhattan and his creative team was around him in Manhattan. And that was Jackie, the joke man, and Fred and Robin. And that was the core. So Gary Delabate wasn't there? Well, he was there, but he wasn't He wasn't normally considered one of the top creatives. I mean, I'm talking about the people who wrote the Howard Stern show. And they, that was the creative nucleus of that TV show was coming out of Manhattan. And they were basically dictating to the people in Secaucus what the show was going to be every week. What they was would, Fred's last name again? Fred Norris. He's still Fre there. Fred Norris. It was uh, uh, Jackie, Jackie the Martling. Joke man. Yeah. Jackie, the joke man, Markling, and uh, and Howard were the writing staff. Those three guys were the writing staff with a little bit of help from Robin and Gary and some of the others, but mainly Howard and those two guys. And they would call up the Secaucus TV producers and tell them on a speakerphone, this is what we're doing this week. Start building the set. And, you know, this is what the sketches will be. We're going to write them over here in Manhattan and send them to you. And then, by the way, they'd write the sketches on with Sharpies on um, on uh, no, on copy paper because that's the way they do it in radio. They don't type things. They don't They don't need a script to follow. They just kind of loosey-goosey write things. That's um, what was so amazing about the television show. You have two writers starting this thing off. You're doing a full television show. You're handwriting it. <laughs> and you got a guy who's never done television yeah. in his life and it's beating Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. Well, so here, so what happened was because I chose not to go in through the radio show, which was well defended. You know, they were in a, a well secured building on Madison Avenue, and it wasn't like you were ever going to get into for a meeting with Howard Stern. Um, it was almost as difficult. Uh, then as it is today to get a meeting with Howard Stern. So because I was able to go in through Secaucus and the, the producers there were hungry for creative talent that could come in and start sending material the other direction. Their dream was, oh, if we just had some writers here in New Jersey who could write up some stuff that Howard likes, we could start contributing creatively to our own TV show. Because those producers weren't necessarily writing producers. They were execution producers. Dan Foreman came from the, the news division at WWR. Um, um, uh, John Lolas is actually the producer who hired me, the executive producer who they had brought in to beef up the creative power of the show. And so they had some money for writers and they hired uh, one kid, Mark Bergelis. Uh, they actually hired him before me. And that poor kid was getting tortured. He was just having a tough time pitching. He'd go into the meetings where... And the way Howard conducts his creative staff is everybody's involved. So a big conference room and you'd have Howard and Jackie and Fred and Robin. And then you'd also have Ralph, who at that time was just the guy who did Howard's hair. And you had, uh, you know, the, the celebrity booker and the PAs and everybody was in this room and everybody was meant to contribute creatively to the show. And this poor kid, Mark Berglis, used to get up and start pitching and the, you know, the locker room uh, mentality of that radio show would take over and Jackie would start throwing stuff at him and Fred would start imitating his voice. And next thing you know, everybody's laughing at him instead of listening to his pitch. And the kid didn't have like what I was fortunate enough to have was the, the, uh, 
the furnace of mask and wig at the University of Pennsylvania, where we were very nasty to each other. And we would, you know, if you tried to pitch something that wasn't good, you were going to get things thrown at you and you're going to get laughed at. And, and you just had to be brave. You had to just keep going and push through that. And so when I came in, when they, I got into those meetings, Howard was so happy because I would just keep buffaloing through my pitches. Um, and I actually, you know, kind of stood up to the, to the locker room. And that's actually why I had quite a bit of success there at that show. Amazing. And, you know, uh, one of the things you mentioned, Jackie, the joke man, and we always talk a lot about what to do as an artist, what to do in your profession, whatever profession you're in to get to the next level. And Jackie, the joke man, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was a very, very uh, unique character in the comedy world a very different kind of character in the comedy world, a character in the comedy world that was hugely successful doing things that were not original, <laughs> which was very, very rare for any artist. Jackie, the joke man was a joke teller and we would tell a lot of jokes that were old jokes. Don't get me wrong. There's jokes that he would write of his own that he would perform, but the majority of his act was all old jokes that you heard from uncles and <laughs> brothers and in the locker room or wherever it was at the barber shop. And, but he was a huge draw. He was very successful and people would come to see him and they loved him. Another thing that Jackie did that every comic who's listening will agree is the number one thing that you cannot do when you're doing stand-up is he laughed at every single one of his jokes. Yep. Every time he told a joke, he, he would, would laugh at it. So here was a guy. He was older. He was older than the normal comic working around the time. He was doing old jokes one after the other. And he was laughing at his own jokes. Yet he probably was one of the most successful comedians in New York, headlining shows all over New York, making tons of money. Yeah. And Howard had him as his joke writer. One of his joke writers was Fred. You know, the way that would work, Barry, is that um, Howard... And this is another great thing about Howard's talent is he's able to take in a lot of information. I used to watch him on the set of the Channel 9 show and he'd be interviewing somebody and then taking information from his writers that they kind of send to him just across his desk, like little handwritten notes that he would then seamlessly incorporate into his interviews. And he does that on the radio that he'll have Jackie used to sit back there with his stack of copy paper and a Sharpie. And as Howard was interviewing somebody or talking on the phone to a caller or whatever it is, Jackie would be constantly writing thoughts lines, questions, jokes for Howard and slipping them to him. And Howard would like read it, decide he didn't like that particular one and just ignore it and keep going with his interview. And then another note would come in that he kind of liked the thought of, and then he'd work that joke into the interview. And you never knew at home that that was going on, that he was getting supplied a little bit by his writers. The only way you knew when Jackie was involved was he would always laugh at his own joke. If Howard used his joke, you would hear Jackie in the background go, yeah! 
like that. And it was like his little cue to the world that I'm here and I wrote what Howard just said. And it was the funniest thing because he wouldn't do it. He would really not laugh at anything else. He would just sit there. And if he, if he, if Howard used a line that Jackie had written for him, he would go, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And for all you people uh, who are writers who have been in writers rooms across the world and sitcoms and sketch shows, you'll notice when there's a table read, You'll notice how hard the people laugh at their own jokes versus the jokes that you write, um, especially in places like Saturday Night Live or, or any sitcom, you know, it's unbelievable. But the thing I wanted to say about Jackie was what not to do when you're an artist. And Howard is the most loyal guy in the world. Howard, you're his family. And... Jackie, uh, at times throughout his tenure, had renegotiated very hard um, to get more money, to get more of a better situation for himself financially. And the last time there was a renegotiation, Jackie pushed and pushed and pushed and in the end gave an ultimatum. He said, look, this is what I want or I'm, you know, it's over. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. And the power of no is wonderful when you actually believe in your heart that you're okay leaving your engineering job. Right. But the power of no, when you're playing a, a game of poker against a guy who has given you your career and giving you your stage to be one of the most successful people out there. And when you start fucking with that person and you go too far, there's always a chance that no matter how loyal that person is, they're going to break. And Howard broke And when Jackie gave the ultimatum and said, hey, listen, you know, it's either you give me this number that I want, which was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and equaled millions of dollars in the end of the contract that he wanted. And they were apart probably maybe $100,000 a year, a little bit more, whatever it was, inconsequential to the money that he was making. When... They went to Howard and said, Howard, what do you want to do? Because everybody would go to Howard. Doesn't matter what business affairs person it was. You're always going to go with the person at the top. Howard said, I believe, and I'm paraphrasing, he gave an ultimatum. He said, it's either that or the show. Okay, well, you guys, you know, make the decision you need to make and, uh, and I'll support it. And it wasn't the first time he had done that. That had been Jackie's negotiating technique at every contract negotiation he came down. There were several times he left the show prior to that in in the midst of negotiations trying to, you know, make the firm line that you're either going to pay me what I want or you may have to do the show without me. And Howard, in those earlier instances, was scared to do the show without Jackie. Um uh, he, he, I believe he said that on the air before that, that he was, you know, wasn't sure what the show was if Jackie left and was worried that, you know, it would be severely hurt by Jackie's exit. And so Jackie had that over Howard. He had the, he knew Howard was scared to change the show. Then they knew that Howard was 
very comfortable with Robin and Jackie and Fred, the way they had done it for so long. And Jackie used to call it the Beatles of, of radio and the four of them were so necessary. And Howard, though, it hurt him every single time when these negotiations would get so acrimonious. And But he would always, you know, somehow behind the scenes make it so that Jackie ended up happy. But Jackie pushed him probably one too many times. And this last one was, as you say, probably it almost seems silly how close it was to a done deal. And the fact that Jackie was still going to these extremes and Howard would say to him in all the past instances, please, this is the last time. Don't do this to me again. It was hurting Howard to be, you know, held a gun to his head like that. And eventually though, as you say, in that last one, Howard decided, all right, I guess I'll just see what the show is like without Jackie if I have to. And uh, he's realized since then, it's actually taught Howard. I believe that there is no, uh, there is no single person that, you know, he should be so scared not to be able to go on without, um, that he has a, you know, his, I think a lot of people would say that, you know, when Artie joined the show, it, it, it had a whole new breath of life to it. And even since Artie has left the show, I think the show has now evolved into a, an amazing version of the Howard Stern show where he's doing these A-list interviews and they're in depth and psychological and, uh, revealing very, very, uh, you know, huge talents. Um, and so I think it's a whole new show now. And, and Howard has learned from the Jackie incident that he's, that Howard is enough that I can do this. I can do this and I can change the show if I need to, and it'll still be fantastic. Yeah. And there's two lessons here for you out there. Number one, if you're an artist in that chair, you have to know that no one is greater in the team, in the common good of the team. And if somebody pushes you, whatever, you have to believe in yourself and know that you can do an incarnation of what you're doing that's just as strong, if not stronger. And there's different chapters of careers. There's different chapters of shows. Look, you know, when Cheers had the, the lead actress on the show, Shelley Long, uh -huh. you thought, wow, this is unbelievable, this chemistry. There's no way. Shelley Long said, you know what, I'm leaving the show. And Kirstie Alley came on and the show still survived and was great. Yeah. In MASH, McLean Stevenson was, it was the biggest show on television. He left the show and another person came in and it was his big, 10 more years, 10 more years. <laughs> and where did McLean Stevenson go? And where did Shelley Long go? And where did Jackie, the joke man, Martling go? And the point being is that if you're an artist and you're in that position, don't, say no and don't give an ultimatum unless you 100% in your mind know that that's what you want in your life for the next 10 years or whatever it is. It's also about partnerships and in your career, they will come and go that you will have people that you work closely with for a period of time. And for that period of time, you're in sync and you're producing great work. And sometimes those partnerships uh, split up like marriages and you should know that it's okay that if a part, if your partnership, the first person you're sitting down with to work as a team and bounce ideas off each other and writing treatments together or whatever you're doing, if someday one of you drops out or doesn't want to do it anymore, or you're disagreeing too much and it's time to split up, it's okay. You can go on. There'll be another partnership or you'll be fine alone or you'll be part of another team. Um, it's, it's about being kind of self-sufficient, even in your partnerships. Thank you, Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> um, it's true. And so Jackie, after that happened, he 
tried to come back. He tried to get his job back. He did everything in his power to get back, but it was too little, too late. Yeah. So let's move forward. You're working, you're making your mark with Howard Stern, and then what's your next step? Well, Howard was very good to me, and I I joined that show in its last season, and uh, he didn't want to continue it with the budget that they had, and the it was a difficult show, and it it uh, kind of tore at him, uh, you know, the amount of work he had to put into it, and uh, Channel Nine wasn't really supporting it with. You know, we were, we were up against Saturday Night Live, who had 20 writers, and we had, uh, at that time, it was uh, Jackie, Fred, Howard, me, and Al Rosenberg were the entire writing staff for that hour of comedy television on Saturday nights. And so he felt he needed more support, and he wanted a bigger budget, and they, they wouldn't do it. And so he said, all right, forget it. So he dropped the Channel 9 show, and all of a sudden, I came up against that thing I had always been afraid of, which was that I had joined an industry where your job is uh, vaporous. And... Uh, I, instead of an engineer and leaving my 401k, I was now an unemployed uh, writer for a show that is canceled. Uh, it was quite a shock to my system, actually. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, John Lolas, the executive producer, uh, had other gigs and he went on to produce a show for Dr. Ruth and he hired me. And I started doing little gigs for the summer after the show ended, the Howard Stern show. And I was doing okay, like I, but I always thought in my head, man, I may have to go back to engineering. I may have to, this might not work. Um, and Howard kind of helped me out too. Like he did Butt Bongo Fiesta right after the Channel 9 show, and I was a big part of that. R- wrote many of the sketches for it and was started to become more of a producer, uh, you know, coaching the talent or, uh, you know, pre-talking to the celebrity guests or, you know, working with the art department to make sure the props were right. And that kind of stuff had happened at Channel 9 too, where we we're so understaffed and underfunded that you kind of had to do everything. Everybody had to do everything. And... Uh, you know, talking to everybody out there who wants to be in entertainment, my a big recommendation I have is that you take any job you can get to get in there and then do every job in the place if you can. Uh, you know, offer every single department to help. Help the editors, help the help the art department, help the, the production management team. Just be extremely useful and you'll eventually become invaluable. It's like you're channeling Sarah right now. Is that right? <laughs> just do it. She's doing seven jobs probably right now. Seven. <laughs> seven just right now. <laughs> uh, but it's the best thing you can do because not only do you learn everything that everybody's doing, you you find your place, you find what it is you like doing or what you're most valuable doing, um, and you also become trusted. You, you, you know, the hardest thing in show business is to find people that you can trust that won't let you down when the chips are down. And uh, that's why, you know, they say you need to know somebody to get in. It's because trust is the hardest thing. Hiring somebody cold from the outside world that you can't trust, your, your reputation is kind of resting on your team. And if you bring people in that uh, are not trustworthy or aren't going to you know, work hard, uh, you can have a real problem. So anyway, if you get in, be a trustworthy, kick-ass, late-working and be willing to do every single thing that you're asked, and then all these other things that you weren't even asked to do. Try and help in any way you can. Anyway, that's what I did at Channel 9. Howard liked me. We did Butt Bongo Fiesta after that. Then I, um, uh, But then I moved to L.A., and um, the move to L.A. had to do with, A, my wife at the time uh, had just graduated uh, with an MBA, and she got recruited by a, uh, a firm out here in LA. And so it was either New York or LA. I knew it. If you're going to be in entertainment, 
I, you may disagree with this, but I feel like you have to kind of be where the action is, at least if you're going to be in television. Um, that's starting to change a little. Like there's now more hubs in other places, but especially in those days, you're either in New York or L.A., and it's still kind of true. L.A. is even more important than New York in terms of television production, especially in the kind of stuff I was wanted to do, which was studio based uh, television. Um, and so L.A. was a great place to come to for me. Although when I first moved to L.A., I was instantly unemployed and I think I was unemployed for about a year. Um, and during that time, I uh partnered up with a guy, Gary Auerbach, who's a producer in town here, and he was unemployed as well. And we used to get together every day and write stuff. We would work on a script that he was trying to make for a movie, or we would write treatments for a new TV show, some of them scripted shows, some of them, you know, reality shows or game shows or whatever. We'd come up with ideas and we'd just try to be productive in spite of the fact that nobody was looking for us. <laughs> okay, so you're you're here in LA. You're I imagine living in a studio apartment. <laughs> you have little or no money for a year. How are you surviving for a year? Like, what do you do? Well, I was a kept husband. My my wife, as an MBA, recruited by McKinsey and Company, was doing just fine. So we could afford, and it was fair because I had kind of worked hard while she was going to school. So we flipped. So she no longer in school is now making good money and I was able to be unemployed without having to take God forbid an engineering job. So what's your first next what's your first break here in LA? Uh it's singled out. Uh what happened there was Gary, my good friend and partner. He I'd met him working on the the uh New Year's Eve special. He was hired to direct some of the sketches that I had written for that special and we got to be good friends. We came out here around the same time and spent that year unemployed. But he had a good network. He had friends uh, at MTV in high places, uh, specifically Lisa Berger at of that course, time. Lisa Berger. And she hired Gary. She had just bought a game show called Skin Deep from a production company named uh, Wheeler Sussman. Um, yeah, I remember that. And Lisa Berger, for those of you who don't know, she now works at ABC yeah. heading up the reality department yes. there. Yes. Um, and uh, she's incredible. She's, she's great. Going. And she's been a patron saint of mine because the first person she hired was Gary. And she said, these game show producers, Wheeler Sussman, came in with this game show that she liked, but she wanted to MTVize it. Um, they needed to put an MTV stamp on it. And Gary was a producer that she had known from New York who had worked for MTV before. So she brought him in to help make this show into an MTV style game show. So Gary, Bert and Sharon of Wheeler Sussman, uh, were the three executive producers and Gary hired me as the head writer on the pilot. And so that's when Jenny McCarthy got hired and Chris Hardwick and uh, put them together. We used to do conference room run-throughs for the pilot. And then we shot a little pilot, uh, not meant so for So you air. were in the casting process yeah. to find the, the woman and the guy. So tell me, <laughs> was there anybody who came in in the casting process who became a household name, oh, but they came in and they auditioned oh, and yeah. you were like... Oh my God, don't quit your day job. And they became, <laughs> they became fantastic. No, it was, well, in those days, uh, Ryan Seacrest was kind of a go-to host of pilots, game show pilots. And in fact, he's hosted pilots for me. Um, and uh, in those days, he was just, you know, making the rounds as a guy who was, you could count on to kind of get the rules right, speak clearly, you know, say something a little cute and he looked good. And uh, and I'm, I actually don't remember specifically him doing it, but I'm absolutely sure that Ryan Seacrest uh, auditioned for that 
hosting job because he was doing all of them in those days. And he, uh, he's an amazing guy. I remember <laughs> I was at a finale of I was at a finale of American Idol. And it's the finale. I mean, it's like literally like 30 million people watch the show. And I'm there like watching the rehearsal that's happening like I think three hours before the actual live taping. And there's a guy on stage who I don't even recognize going through all of Ryan's stuff. I'm thinking to myself, where is Ryan Seacrest? I mean, this is a guy, it's his show. He's thinking, like, this is the guy who gets paid, God knows, $35 million a year to do this thing. He's not even there. I take a stage manager aside. I said, how is this a live show? You don't even have the guy here. Oh, it's, it's Ryan. We don't worry about Ryan. I said, how can you not worry? You'll see. And so right before the show, like a half hour before the live show, I'm standing amongst these TVs and the teleprompter people off the side. And all of a sudden, I feel his presence next to me. He's uh, in a suit. He looks great. He's camera ready. And he talks to the teleprompter guy. He says, okay, let's from the top. And the guy just scrolls through and he's just looking at the screen. He's like, okay, next. Okay, next. Yeah. Okay, you don't have to go anymore. That's good. Thanks. <laughs> and that was his rehearsal yeah. for the, the largest television show in history. The man's solid. He's very solid. Solid with teleprompters, solid with a live interview with somebody. He's a solid, smart guy. So So tell me what happened when Jenny McCarthy came in. What were you what were you thinking besides well, we all uh, loved is my her. marriage stable? It was <laughs> <laughs> the the problem for us about Jenny McCarthy was that she was the reigning playmate of the year. And at MTV, that was not a uh, respected credential, and they were terrified of hiring the uh, playmate. Let, uh, just somebody who posed naked was uh, hard for them to understand. Well, they hired you. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> My nude photos have, have been squashed. <laughs> the most difficult thing that people don't realize when you're doing these auditions, these host auditions is teleprompter and for those of you who don't know what a teleprompter is or how it works what happens is you have a very large camera like those cameras that you've seen on television series or whatever in the behind the scenes that are like they're on like a like almost like a round dolly with wheels and they weigh like literally hundreds of pounds and the way the teleprompter works is somebody's typing in the copy of whatever there is to say and it's showing up right in the camera that you're looking into. And unbelievably, when you're doing it, you can't believe that the audience can't see the words. But you can see the words and it's scrolling yeah. up. But it's, it's like a one-way mirror. It's it, like a, you can see through the backside of it, but you, you can see the words. But even though it seems like it would be simple to read the copy of what you're doing off of a piece of paper that's just literally being beamed into the face of the camera that you're looking into, it's a different muscle. And there's people that are amazing that just can't do it. And there's people who have no experience at all that can just walk right in and do it. Yeah. And normally there's very little training that people offer for it. Right. You and so here, to... you, here you have a woman who's a playmate of the year <laughs> who's never hosted anything and never done teleprompter before. And 
So what happened when she auditioned? Well, she's a natural talent. I mean, she has a natural... First of all, she's extremely likable. She's down to earth. She's, you know, a much, very smart woman. Um, and so she had a lot going for her. I mean, she was charming and beautiful and funny and kind of dudish. Like, she would burp and slap guys on the shoulder. And she was fun. She was a fun, fun person to have around. She's somebody you'd want to invite over all the time. And that's... That's perfect in a host. A host that you want, that you would actually like to hang out with, that's the best kind of host. So when you guys saw her, it was automatic. She was the number one choice by far, or did you test a bunch of people? We tested a bunch of people. There were other choices that would have gotten the job if MTV had ultimately decided they were too scared to hire the playmate. But uh, uh, we lobbied hard for her. Uh, Gary and Bert and Sharon lobbied hard. Lisa went to bat for her, knew she was the right one. Lisa Berger knew that Jenny was the best of them all and uh, convinced the brass at Viacom that it was going to be okay. Van Toffler. We, we were all going to, we're going to be all right. We're going to, you know, hiring a playmate is just going to be fine. And it was, it was not an issue for MTV. It was not a negative because Jenny spoke so well for herself and was so obviously more than, um, you know, hired for her bod, uh, that I think that that's how it, it's just because Jenny was so good, I think. Yeah, well, you were dressing her in all those turtlenecks during the show. Of <laughs> my uh, my big thing was her navel. I was like, you know, her navel's got to be worth a lot of ratings, and so I would always, I'd always be like, it's always got to show. It was, I was, it was like a rule. And what about Chris Hardwick? How did he get hired? How did that all work? Well, out? he was already. He had just done a show for MTV called Trashed. Uh, that hadn't survived, but he was already like this floppy haired, cute, funny, energetic, very smart guy. Um, and he was actually an easy hire. Like he was, he just did a great job, uh, with the show right away, was already an MTV face. And so it was kind of a smooth road for him to move into that show. So then your next step after MTV and the success of that show which you ended up running the last two seasons, or right? Didn't you end up executive producing? The yeah, last? what happened was poor Bert, Sharon, and Gary didn't like working together or whatever. For whatever reason, all three of them left at once, and it left nobody running the show. And so I was the head writer, and Lisa was uh, again my uh, one of my patron saints in my in my career. Howard being one, Lisa I would say is another. Uh, had the faith in me to say, okay, well, because as a head writer, again. I was doing much more than writing. I, I, I ran the writing staff for all the silly little questions and the copy that the hosts were saying, but I was also in charge of the art department and I was in charge of the prize department and I was in charge of, I, I kind of took over department by department because I was a good manager, because I had a, I was organized, I worked very hard. Um, and so I just found reasons why I would just keep taking over these departments. So by the time the producers left, I was already kind of running a, a chunk of the show anyway. Um, and they, uh, put me in as the showrunner along with a woman, uh, Nancy McDonald, who was an MTV, uh, producer. And she and I ran that show for three seasons. Um, and then we left when Jenny left. And, uh, then the show went on for a couple seasons after that with Carmen Electra, but I was not uh, part of that incarnation of the show. So then you move to the Fox network. How does that happen? Well, again, Lisa, Lisa Berger, patron saint, Lisa Berger. Relationships, everybody. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, it's trust, too. It's like she knew I was somebody that worked hard and somebody that, you know, she could trust. And and, um, and also Gary, Gary Auerbach, uh, my friend that I had been unemployed with for so long. And so Lisa left MTV 
uh, Brian Graydon had come in and was reorganizing the channel to, you know, bring in his people, basically. So Lisa left MTV at that time, and she moved to Fox Television Studios. She got a job uh, with a small studio inside of Fox that was tasked with making cable uh, television. And so she took over there as their head of... um, uh, development and she had the power to make what they called pod deals in those days. Uh, we used to, I've had many of them. Yeah. It stands for puny overall deal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but the first pod deal that she gave out was to Gary and I, because we had formed a little company called mindless entertainment and she took a risk and hired us on a three year contract to come in and basically gave us a salary and a budget that we could spend to try and develop shows and make tapes and option properties. She gave us office space. We had an assistant. It was beautiful. That it was, was the, that beautiful. Was in, and that was in the late 90s. Yes. And she set us up. So I went from singled out to big deal. Got it. And it was Gary again. Gary and I were the showrunners for that show. Uh, that show was produced by Stone Stanley Productions in those days. And, but where was that show? It was on Fox. It was on after football So on Sunday nights. Okay, so you had the relationship with Fox and then Lisa came in yeah. and then it's just both things came together yeah okay so then talk about uh there's something you worked on that was a a show that was uh it was a crazy time i believe it was in the late 90s where there were two african-american hosts that came on uh late night television at right. the same time i'm talking oh, about the show oh, yes, the yes, show yes, vibe yes. produced by quincy jones right and Keenan Ivory Wayans. And Keenan Ivory Wayans show. <laughs> and um, Vibe was, they tabbed the unknown host, uh, Chris Spencer, who now is one of the writers and showrunners of The Real Husbands of Hollywood with Kevin Hart on BT. And they tapped Keenan Ivory Wayans. And I want you to talk about Keenan because it's, it's fascinating because that here is another guy that is another kind of genius. Yes. Uh, but instead of Howard being the huggable, lovable genius with the uh, lackadaisical kind of rules and regulations and how things work, Keenan Ivory Wayans was a guy, he was a pile driver. Yes. He was a guy that was a workaholic who demanded excellence from every level of production for all hours of the day and night, even if he didn't necessarily spend all hours of the day and night working and might have spent time in his dressing room with certain people that might not have been part of the show. (laughs) He demanded that from everybody. And if you were a writer on the Keenan Ivory Wayne show, you got there at eight o'clock in the morning, you stayed till, I mean, sometimes four, you weren't allowed to leave for food. You weren't, it, it was craziness. Well, it's an interesting story that you bring up. I don't talk about this very often because it ends, the story for me ends badly with me getting fired. But, uh, but you weren't the only one. No, I was not. I was not the only head to roll. But, um, the way that came about was, uh, Buena Vista Television was developing a talk show for John Sally. And they, I remember it well. And they had done a pilot. And And he did a great job, John Sally. It was a phenomenal phenomenal pilot. pilot. He was a great talk show host. And they were about to pick him up. Yes. And they, and I had, gone to several meetings with them talking. This is while I was doing Big Deal. I had done several meetings with them about being 
the showrunner for the John Sally talk show. And for those you don't know, John Sally is a four-time NBA champion who also was a guy who tried stand-up and was always funny and always unique, but literally had been in some movies like Bad Boys and things like that. And always funny, always unique, but seven feet tall <laughs> and uh, a huge presence. And this pilot, again, I believe they had told him that it was picked up. I believe they told him at Buena Vista that he was going yes. forward because it tested so wonderfully and he was so great. Yes, so I was sure it was going forward. He was sure, and I was sure I had the job. And in fact, one of the reasons I had the job was because they asked me for a reference. And I said, well, there's Howard Stern and Susie Pulse at that time, uh, was her name at that time, uh, was blown away when Howard Stern called her up at her home and said, you know, you got to hire Cronin. He's the best. And so basically Howard kind of got me that job with that Re phone call. Relationships, yes. everybody. <laughs> um, so they were going to hire me to be the showrunner of John Sally, but then all of a sudden Keenan Ivory Wayans appeared willing now to do a, a late night talk show. And the minute he stepped into the ring to do a late night talk show, uh, Buena Vista threw all their energy into his project, basically shelving or killing the John Sally project and decided to throw in with um, Keenan. And uh, Michael Davies, who was at uh, Buena Vista at that time. Uh, an incredible uh, reality producer and yes. executive as well. Enormous respect for uh, Michael Davies. And he... Uh, uh, had, was kind of shepherding the John's the uh, the Keenan Ivory Wayans project, and teamed uh, Keenan with a British production company uh, headed by Charlie Parsons, who created Survivor, believe it or not. Um, and he brought in this British production company because they were doing a show in England called The Big Breakfast that uh, Michael was a fan of. It was a very loose, fun audience participation, big talk show in the morning in, in England. It was a number one morning show in England. And these, this production company, he paired them with Keenan Ivory Wayans to go and produce this show. And they felt bad for me, which doesn't happen often in Hollywood, but they felt bad for me having been this close to being the showrunner of the John Sally show that kind of as a, uh, uh, I don't know, a solve for the wound. Uh, Michael called and said, would you like to come on board this project? You can't be the showrunner. I already have another company doing that, but you can come on and be the supervising producer of comedy for the show, which I just thought was fantastic. Like, you know, great. I can be the supervising producer of comedy for Keenan Ivory Wayans. The problem for me was that Keenan really didn't know the English production company and he didn't know me at all and the and other problem was <laughs> he knew that you were aligned with john sally and he knew that you were a part of that project and now you're being laid off on, on this project him. right and no artist wants to know right. that you were part of the enemy even if you won and beat the enemy yeah they don't want to know that i stepped into a bad political situation no question about it there was another problem though at that show and it has to do with keenan's perfectionism that you spoke about Keenan was doing was one of the most successful sketch, you know, uh, in Living Color was probably one of the most groundbreaking, phenomenal, beautifully written, beautifully performed, beautifully produced uh, sketch shows of all time. And Keenan was the man behind that show. He was the vision of what that show was. And that show was perfect because Keenan made it perfect. But he made it perfect on a weekly basis. He would have to do a half hour of weekly television. And for that half hour, he could edit everything to perfection. He could perfect the scripts. He could rehearse the performances. When you go into late night comedy and now all of a sudden you've got to do an hour of television a night, 
instead of a half an hour a week, you've got to, unfortunately, you have to loosen up a little bit your standards. It has to kind of be, well, that's good enough. Let's get that on the air because we got another show to do tomorrow. And the problem I ran into, and I think that that show ran into, was the the perfectionist mentality met the uh, imperfection of disposable nightly television. And it was incompatible with what Keenan wanted to do. His, his vision for how good a sketch should be or a film that we we're doing or commercial parody was beautiful. He's an artist and they were all fantastic. It's just that we ran out of all the films we made for the, uh, you know, we had probably eight weeks of preparation for the premiere night. And by the, by the time the show premiered, we probably had 10 commercial parodies in, in the bank and we were not going to make it past the second week, uh, with those things and very quickly ran out. So it's, it's, it was unfortunately his, his style of work didn't match the style necessary for late for a daily show, but still a genius, but a genius that, uh, went the other way. Yeah, well, listen, he still makes great movies, and, you know, I hear rumblings every once in a while that they may bring in Living Color back again, and I just have enormous respect for, for Keenan always will, uh, even though I, I got fired on that project. Uh, it was, uh, it, I learned a lot. We've all, well, <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, we've all been fired by people we respect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, Michael Davies fired me. Oh. He, he <laughs> called me in and he told me, he said, Mo, it's not going to work out. Uh, <laughs> and he said, um, "Listen, someday though, uh, we're both going to be in the retirement home, the you know the entertainment retirement home, and I'm going to need somebody to wheel me into the sunlight on the porch. And uh, I hope I can count on you for that." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. It's fantastic. Well, you're right about Keenan Wayans. He is a genius in everything that I've ever seen him work on. It's just, it's amazing. I mean, and that's I, I, that's the part of the his personality and how he is. It's just, just incredible. Every movie he does is, it seems to be incredibly successful. You know, and Living Color was one of the greatest shows ever. So I agree with that, and I, I think that's a great assessment about the late night thing. It just that kind of thing can get the best of you. And so let's move to the next thing that happened with you. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you had the goal of thinking, okay, The View is doing really, really well. How do I take something like The View and take my pen roots <laughs> of how I had the all-male sketch group uh -huh. and channel this into a male-dominated talk show? Every day. Yeah. Well, you, you give me uh, more credit than I deserve for the initial notion. The initial notion was Peter Liguori, who was the head of FX in those days, uh, wanted to do, at, those, at that time, Maxim Magazine, uh, FXM, Stuff Magazine were big. And guy humor you know, uh, guy, you know, I don't know, even the man show at this time was, was bubbling up. Um, there was this, this thought that, you know, men are interested in doing better in life or want information on how to dress and these kinds of things. And the magazines were kind of the inspiration for that. And we had a meeting with Peter and he said, he had on his coffee table, Maxim and FHM. And he said, I want that on TV. And he did it to several producers. He said, go out, think of what that means. What does Maxim Magazine or Stuff Magazine on TV mean? And come back and pitch things to me. And so Gary and I were part of that kind of derby to pitch 
Peter Liguori the right idea for that. And so we pitched this show with four male hosts called The X Show, meant to be a segmented nightly show. Uh, we had such con- we would say things like, well, guys want to know what to wear, but they don't want to look at male models on TV. So let's put all the guy clothing on female models. So we'll do guys, you know, girls in guys suits, girls in guys underpants, girls in guys. And so we would, uh, that was kind of a nice little twist. And then we had the idea that we do a weekly beauty pageant and we would do sports picks on Friday and pay them off on Monday. And we would, we just had a lot of great energy and ideas in our pitch to him for that show. And, uh, we, I guess we won that derby and we made the pilot and got picked up and that show, uh, it ran two years and we did 400 episodes of it. And, um, it was one of the most enjoyable, uh, jobs of my life. Like I loved producing that show every day, every day we'd reinvent the show every day. We'd make the show at 11 in the morning and then, uh, put it on the satellite that night. Um, I just had so much fun. I loved the whole process of it. It was an enormous amount of work, but, uh, really loved producing that show. And again, not to be the dead horse of relationships, but one of your hosts for that show was Bert Kreischer. That is correct. <laughs> Bert Kreischer. That's, that's how, uh, Bert and I got together is he came on and that's actually where Hurt Bert came from. Uh, as a host of the X show, we did a segment where he went to an esthetician, <laughs> a, a wax, a place that waxes the hair off your body, and uh, he actually had his butt waxed. One uh, of the one, one of the funniest <laughs> segments that I've ever seen to this day and yeah. will ever see in my life is Bert Kreischer holding his package <laughs> while this woman waxed his butt, and every rip of that wax played on Bert's face. In such an amazing way. That's the thing about Bert is that his emotions go right out. He has no filter whatsoever in his body. It just and he and he had a, a tremendous respect for women after that. <laughs> tremendous respect for women. Um, I I think it's just a it was just a hilarious segment. But so. it was that tape of him screaming in pain as somebody ripped hair out of his butt. Uh, that led to us saying, "Wow, what if we just did found some way to every week." <laughs> Hurt, hurt this guy. <laughs> That's right. So tell me some of the next things that happened. You did uh, three seasons of a show called Beat the Geeks on yeah. Comedy Central. Very proud of that show. That was right after the X show. Um, we were just coming out of the overall deal, and Gary and I kind of split up. Gary Auerbach and I, our partnership split up. He wanted to go a scripted route, and I was perfectly happy with these talk shows and game shows. And so... Um, I, I sold on a pitch this idea that was uh, James Rowley and I, uh, a guy who worked for me at that time, had this idea of beat the geeks. And um, it would be that there'd be four experts, super experts beyond anything you could be as an expert on movies, TV, music, and then a guest geek every week. And we went in and we pitched that to Comedy Central and they bought it. And I'm uh, very proud of that show. Always loved it. I thought it was a, a lot of fun. And I think it could be on, it would be on the air today uh, because people are loving, you know, uh, the nerdist and geek chic and, and super fans of all types. Um, it's owned by Fox Television Studios, so I don't know if they'll ever resurrect it. You're if they have, do, I hope they come gonna look for to, me to gonna produce. Going to have to repackage it. it. Yeah, there's so many things here to talk about, but let's let's get into one of the mother loads of your life and career, the surreal life. Yeah, 
that was the thing in my mind that you know even though you did 400 episodes of the x show and beat the geeks and all these things for three seasons two seasons you know no matter what you think out in the world of this television business even though you would think that two or three seasons or 400 episodes would be an enormous success and talk or whatever as a producer you still sit on the couch in the fetal position <laughs> saying to yourself fucking mark burnett jesus christ right, right 15 seasons of survival american idol fucking all these why can't i get something that goes at least five years what's the matter <laughs> i need my thing that's gonna get me to where i want to go because once you get one of those things yeah get a helmet because things are gonna happen to you and that thing for you was surreal life. Yes, and it wasn't just longevity. It was for me. There was a matter, a, a measure of have I impacted pop culture or not? And I would say on the Howard Stern show, I had a hand anyway. Howard, of course, was the leading edge of that, but I was part of something that impacted pop culture. I believe singled out was something that you know moved the needle a little bit, and made a dent both with its hosts and also its the show was lasted and was fun. But it wasn't your show. No, I did not create it. Right. And uh, but the other things hadn't really moved the needle, even beat the geeks as much as I adore it. It wasn't like a huge monster hit. Um, and so you're right. I definitely was still in, in search of that thing that I could create that would move the needle and impact the world. And uh, was fortunate enough that the surreal life is one of those that kind of struck a nerve and and broke through um, the the genesis of that show uh, was that. Uh, UTA I was represented by Chris Colon at that time. He's mm -hmm. now a producer. Um, he put me together with another producing team, Chris Abrego and Rick Teas, just to have a breakfast. And he said, "Why don't you three get together? Because you're, you know, these young guys, Chris and Chris and Rick, uh, are young whippersnappers, and you're, you know, semi-established, and maybe the three of you can be a more powerful swing." So the three of us got together for a breakfast and. <clears throat> kind of came up with the idea of doing a reality sitcom. Like, could we take X sitcom stars and make a family out of them and, but do it as a reality show where they're actually just living together. And there was a, at, in those days there was a stovetop stuffing commercial where George Hamilton is living with Charo and Mr. T is their son. And it was some ridiculous commercial that was, what if celebrities were in a family together? And this is what's so <laughs> fucked up about our world in Hollywood. George Hamilton, when <laughs> in this town, you can be famous for having a tan. <laughs> that's, that's George Hamilton. Anyway, keep yeah. going. I'm sorry. But so the idea was to make a family of pop culture icons. And we actually thought it would be a family of ex-sitcom people. That turned out to be impossible to to cast, but we, you know, so we opened it up a bit. But anyway, so we went in and we pitched several places and um, uh, we went into the WB and uh, Keith Cox, uh, who now who runs... Who is now a TV land. Yeah. Uh, he bought the show and uh, took it to his boss, Jordan Levin. Uh, and this was at the WB, uh, a network that no longer exists. And they were not a network that was known for reality television, although they had the Jamie Kennedy experiment in those days yeah. was one of their, and they had high school reunion, but they weren't big in reality and mostly because they didn't want to be. Uh, Jordan Levin's philosophy was that reality television is ratings crack, that you'll get a popular hit uh, of ratings, but it doesn't stick, that the audience 
doesn't know the characters the next season and won't come back. Uh, he preferred, he much strongly preferred scripted content where when the network is investing in Everwood and Gilmore Girls and Smallville, that that can run season after season and you know the characters and you come back for them season after season. Whereas something like a reality show that has to kind of rotate its cast uh, is kind of a waste of effort uh, on the part of the network. I think he was wrong. Ultimately, we kind of proved that that you can have a reality show that's brand is big enough to bring the audience back no matter if the cast changes or not. The Bachelor works every season and there's nobody on The Bachelor that was there from last season. And you still come back because it's The Bachelor. Um, so clearly... I think that that thinking was misguided, but he was a genius in that he bought the surreal life and put it on his air and and got that ratings crack hit. And we got uh, big numbers for the WB in those days. Now, your first cast was. uh, Can you remember them all? Yeah, well, we we started with and this is part of the relationships thing. We started with, believe it or not, the first one cast was Corey Feldman because he had been on the X show as a guest. And he and I, you know, he had also been kind of on the Howard Stern show. He had appeared on the Channel Nine show. So he and I kind of knew each other and had kind of a, a respect for each other. And so I started with him and it wasn't easy. Uh, this, the pitch for doing this real life was not an easy pitch. Uh, people sometimes say, oh, those has-beens, what else have they got to do? You know, they, they might as well do this in real life. Well, the truth is nobody thinks that way. Nobody thinks that way. Everybody thinks they're one script away from the next big movie. Everybody's, you know, still thinks they're about to get tapped on the shoulder to be the, the next big thing on a sitcom. Well, and, you know, look at Maya Bialik. I mean, it's like she, I mean, was brought on to the Big Bang Theory and... There she, she is. She hadn't worked in, I think, over 10 or 15 years. Chevy Chase, community, he hadn't worked in 14 years. But the fact is, if you have something, if you have something, a semblance of anything, yeah. there's always a chance that you're going to get another shot. And the wisdom in those days was, if you had any thought that you were going to do movies or television in the scripted space... If you touch reality television, you're dead. You'll, they will never hire you ever again in any kind of scripted capacity. That's what they thought. That's what almost every celebrity thought. So when you pitch it to them and you say, you're going to do a reality show and we're going to watch you brush your teeth and you're going to, you know, we're going to in the morning wake up while you scratch your butt on the way to the bathroom. It's like they just looked at that like, oh, my God, it really is over for me if you're going to do that to me. And so it's not an easy pitch. And, um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the money you were paying was like not spectacular. No, my my trick for it. And it was favored nations was <laughs> for those of you who don't know what favored nations is. That means that the deals when you're doing a show like this, they all have to be exactly the same. The language has to be exactly the same in the contract, except for the name of the person, their social security number, federal ID number, and their address. And the money and the terms need to be the same. And there are times, just so you know out there, when somebody's doing a show where everybody's agreed to favor nations and there's somebody you really want and they won't agree to it. And there are ways of getting around it. The contract still has to be the same. But then maybe you can make some side letter a development that, says, deal or that something. says here's a development deal where yeah. you get $50,000 or here's you're a script consultant and you're got You're exposing all the tricks on this show, aren't you? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Barry. <laughs> favored nations means favored nations. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> uh, well, so anyway, uh, the idea that these people would put themselves in a reality situation was uh, quite extraordinary. My trick for paying them, though, Barry, was that 
I came up with the idea that we could do the entire six episodes that the WB had ordered in 12 days. And so what I said to the celebrities was, it's two weeks of work. It's just two weeks. And I'm going to pay you really well for two weeks of work, uh, which I believe I did. I paid them quite well if you look at it as a weekly number. Uh, Are you allowed to say what number that was? Oh, I can't remember. I probably at that at that time it was probably I thought it was between twenty I thought it was twenty five thousand or been. something. It may like have, that. I think maybe it was thirty five, something like that. So it's thirty five thousand dollars for two weeks of work. So you're getting seventeen a week. And uh, that's great. Who else is making $17,000 a week? Unfortunately, you're only making about 5000 an episode. Well, that's the thing. If you divide it by the number of episodes, it's not very good pay at all. But I needed eight celebrities. So who, were, added, your, so who were your eight besides So Corey we started Feldman. with Corey Feldman. We added MC Hammer, which mm-hmm. was actually not an easy pitch either. He was very suspicious of the project and thought it might be a hatchet job of some sort. And... Um, uh, I'm proud to say that this real life is not a hatchet job show. It's a it's a very honest show and very good natured. And the I think the real thing about this real life is is when people come together, will they gel into a family or not? And let's watch the process of roommates gelling into a family or not. That's basically what it is. It's a social experiment. Anyway, so Corey Feldman, MC Hammer, Vince Neil from Motley Crue. Uh, and you can see here I'm going to musicians because they were a little easier to talk to about this. They weren't as hung up on I'll never work and script it again. They're, and a and in musician in the music world, when you're, a, you're not a has-been, you're a classic. You're an inspiration to the musicians of today. They don't look at the people, the, the people who made hit records in the 60s as over. They look at them as their great inspirations. So Vince Neil and MC Hammer didn't feel, didn't believe that they were has-beens of any kind. They were fine with it. They were like, I've made a huge hit. You know, I made an impact on pop culture and I've inspired, you know, music that goes forward to this day. So the musicians aren't hung up the same way that uh, script uh, actors are. Actors are much more hung up on am I relevant or not uh, at the moment. Um, anyway, so we got those three and then there was uh, Gabrielle Carteras from Beverly Hills 90210. We had, oh God, if I'm leaving somebody out, they're going to be mad at me. Jerry Manthe from Survivor. We put a reality person into another reality show on the theory that they were now a celebrity. Um, uh, uh, Emmanuel Lewis was a nice uh, booking and uh, he turned out to be great friends with MC Hammer. It was a lot of fun to watch those two together. Um, I think, maybe, I don't know. I probably forget Any other women on the show? Brandy, Brandy Roderick uh, was on That's that first season. She was a former Playmate of the Year. I'd had success with those before, so I tried again. I'm sure you have. <laughs> no, professionally. Oh, professionally, sorry. Um, and so that was a hit. And then, but then something, but then what happened next? Well, we did a couple seasons on the WB, but the WB, again, stuck with that philosophy that it was ratings crack. And they actually canceled us in the second season, after the second season. One of the few times a show is canceled when it's doing well. Yes, I thought so. It seemed crazy to me, but they they canceled it. And then they did something even better for us than canceling us. (laughs) I'm so grateful to them for canceling me and then letting me have it. They basically said, via con Dios, it's, you know, we're not going to hold up the ownership of it or require you to keep it off the air for years. They didn't do that thing that a lot of people do in Hollywood where you protect yourself against a bad decision and force the project into death so that you don't very, look stupid. Very common that people just protect themselves and they just don't let you have it back. Right. And they just let us have it. I guess maybe believing like how what are you going to do with that? You know, Cronin, good luck with that canceled, you know, show trashy show. But uh, Brian Graydon. 
at uh, at VH1, who was in charge of VH1 and MTV, made one of the gutsiest moves, I believe, ever in picking up a canceled show from a network that wasn't like a national phenomenon at that time. It wasn't like he was it was a no brainer. It was a risk. He he picked up the show and he. But what Brian knew and the kind of executive that Brian is, he knew that if he picked up the show and gave you life, that he would be able to have a little more than just an outside view of a show coming in. He knew that if he gave you the lifeline to pick it up, that he could be a huge part of the casting of the show with you and he could be involved with you in the decision making. And and that was, in my mind, one of the reasons why, because when you pick up a canceled show and somebody says, hey, listen, you executives, you stay over there. I'm coming in and doing my thing. You never would have had the show picked up, but he knew if he could get the right kind of casting for his network, which a lot of the people that you had were right for his network, and he knew he could work with you, and he knew you'd work with him because yeah. of your relationships in the past, then that that first season on VH1, what was the cast there? Uh, that was the year, that was Flavor Flav and Bridget Nielsen and Dave Coulier and Charo and... Um, I want to say that that was also uh, Vern Troyer and uh, Christopher Knight. No, that was that was the second season on VH1. They start blurring together in my That's senile okay. brain. But that was a big first year because Flava Flav and Bridget oh, Nielsen yeah. and uh, yeah. And so, <laughs> so what I want to ask you this: this is one of the weird questions that I've ever asked on the podcast. Is like everybody knows when you do television that actors and actresses you know, hook up, you know, it, 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 you know, it happens. It's happened throughout the beginnings of time, but you're on this reality show and, you know, it, it, when you're on a scripted show and actors and actresses hook up, it's bad news. And the reason why it's bad news is that if it goes astray and those actors and actresses aren't getting along, you have table reads, you have things together. You, the whole chemistry of the show is fucked up. Because America can't see that. All America sees is what's on the screen that you're writing and you put on. And then everybody suffers on the set from a relationship that's gone bad. On reality television, you get down on your knees and pray <laughs> to Allah that people hook up and get in arguments. Because the conflicts on reality shows are what make reality shows juggernauts. Right. That's so right. when did you first know or feel that Flava Flav and Bridget Nielsen were going to hook up? It That was the first day they met. I mean, the first moment they met, they were gravitated to each other like a north and south magnet. I mean, they just like stuck on each other and they were both crazy in the same way. And they were both fans of each other from afar. You know, he had been a big fan of her movies and she was a fan of public enemy and they were just meant for each other. And were they in a strange way when they met? Well, yes. I, well, Yes. <laughs> I mean, Flav's always got a relationship and Bridget had a guy back in Italy. And uh, uh, but, you know, listen, you're on set. It's a very erotic situation. I guess it's. Uh, <laughs> um, so they're in a house together. Yet all of a sudden they start. Yeah. Yeah. They, they for real. I mean, they they went at it. Yeah. 
Um, it was amazing. It was a beautiful thing to see. It was. It's a. It's kind of a tribute to Flav's. Uh, Flav is so charming, and he can just talk his way. And when he talks to somebody, you're it, the only person in the room. It makes me feel good that I could actually have a shot with women with teeth that are actually not all capped. I feel like I might. There's hope for me. Okay, and I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so so you just so so it it just works out, and the ratings go through the roof. Yeah. It, it, well, what happened was, and it was obviously, I feel, a brilliant move of Brian Graydon. He had a, a channel he was trying to turn into a pop culture channel, something that celebrates pop culture past and present. And they were doing I Love the 80s and I Love the 90s and that kind of thing. And so there was Surreal Life coming in as their first live action reality show was kind of a living, breathing I Love the 80s show it was all of a sudden you've got mc hammer living with uh emmanuel lewis and you're you know it's crazy and so uh uh the he saw the beauty of how it was a tribute to the past yet it was making something new and he saw also early on he saw that it was a crucible a a, a petri dish for talent that you could find people to come back and pop off the screen in that show maybe there'd be something else to do with them well and this is what's miraculous about you Normally, people pray to have one spinoff in their life. <laughs> you had four. I would say that the tree of life that comes from the surreal life is quite extensive. Next was Strange Love, which right. was uh, Flav and Bridget and their adventures in Italy, New York, and Vegas. My Fair Brady was a spinoff of the surreal life. Uh, Flavor of Love was a spinoff of Strange Love, which was a spinoff of the surreal life. Rock of Love was a obviously an inspiration or spinoff of flavor of love uh i love new york was a she was a character on this on flavor of love and had two seasons of her own show two contestants from her show real and chance ended up with two seasons of their own dating show real chance of love daisy de la Hoya, who was a contestant on rock of love spun off into her own show uh daisy of love um uh, Megan Hauserman, who was a contestant on Rock of Love, had her own show, Megan Wants a Millionaire. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I got them all, but you there's a lot so of them. You have so many spinoffs. You have yeah. a spinoff waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were churning. Like, we would put a, a character. What we'd do is the network would always sit behind us in the control room. You're in a garage, usually. We'd take somebody's mansion, and we move them out. Sometimes we pay for them to go somewhere, almost like Extreme Home Makeover, <laughs> except we, we're going to cut their house into Swiss cheese, quite frankly. But we don't tell them that. So the people, we move out the family of the from their house and we install our show we put lights in the ceiling and surveillance cameras in the corners and uh change their pillows and furniture to be tv friendly uh change all their art to be stuff that we've cleared and and we move into their garage and we put in i don't know a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment into the garage of tv screens and cameras and tape machines and uh audio equipment and surveillance mics and uh, robotic cameras and everything it's all controlled from this garage and we all sit in there while the cast is in the main house in the mansion we're all packed in usually about 20 of us into a little garage uh watching what's going on on the tv screens um and the way it usually works is the front line right closest to the screens those are the director and the audio head audio guy and mostly technical people running kind of the cameras and the and the show right behind them sit the producers which would be like me and other producers who might be producing a segment that day or whatever we have a table behind the front row and then the back row is usually 
a line of directors chairs and that's where the network comes and goes. They'll come in and sit in the back and kind of watch what's happening in kibitz. And the way we ended up with the Surreal, uh, Surreal Life, then Flavor of Love, then Rock of Love and all these spinoffs, the VH1 executives would sit behind us watching possibly the first episode as the cast is coming together and meeting each other and and we're seeing who's funny and who's popping and and we would literally turn around Chris Abrego and I we might turn around and say to the network behind us see her that's a show and they'd go yes she is and then we'd start moving towards you know building our show to make sure that she came off in a way that we could then spin off a show for her that's how New York and things like that went now we're going to head into the final roundup here, but one of the things that in 2008, when End the Mall bought 51% of 50... 51 Minds. <laughs> 51 Minds, <laughs> which is your company from Mindless Entertainment. This is one of the things that always fascinates me, and, um, and there are certain situations you wonder how people perform under these circumstances. Like, if you're a baseball fan and you're Yasiel Puig... And you were a Cuban refugee who literally tried to escape your country five different times to get over here. And then were taken by a drug cartel and moved to Mexico who threatens you all through your career or whatever. And you finally get your $42 million or whatever is that big chunk of change. You wonder yourself, how are that, how's that person going to perform after they got that guaranteed contract? And it's common knowledge and well-documented, although I'll let people look it up rather than me saying it on the air and embarrassing you. But in 2008, you know, no matter how many shows you had on the air and how many executive producer fees you had and whatever it was, you know that no matter how successful you are, you're still thinking to yourself, why is it that we don't have more money here? <laughs> why is it that we're doing all these things and I don't feel like we're like, have like the kind of real cushion that we should really have. And in 2008, you got like the mother load deal from end them all where you got paid more money than anybody in the world could ever imagine of probably making your most people. The truth is it is strangely demotivating that you get this enormous check and you're like, Oh, this is awesome what I could like how much fun can I have in my vacation house and I can travel and I can but the truth is that's not the case they you know everybody wants you to keep going and when a when a big company buys a little company they're making a little bet they're saying to the little company you can go on and be a little company yourself and over the next six years you might make x amount of dollars we're going to come in and pay you that x amount of dollars right now and we're then going to collect the money that you're going to make over the next six years. And the bet they're making, or the bet that you're making when you sell the company to this big company, is that they're paying you more than you would have made yourself anyway. And so somebody's going to lose that bet. Either the company is going to pay more money for your company than you'll make back for them, or they're going to make less than than uh, than what you would you're going to make less than what you would have made without them, and so we made that bet. We they they paid for six years of our profits, and paid for them up front, kind of. And uh, it's it's a very strange feeling because now you're all of a sudden you've been you've been an entrepreneur all this time. You've built your companies and you've eaten what you killed. You you made a hit show and you got paid for it. 
Now your job is to earn back the money that they've paid you. You've already been paid. And now your job is to keep working as hard as you can so that they make money on your, on the purchase. And it's like, almost like they're relying on your goodwill or your moral stature that you don't want to just freeload off and take their money and run. Like you need to keep churning out money for them so that they can make back the money they gave you. And it's a very weird feeling. It's a, it, it's, I know it's, nobody's going to be very sympathetic with it. <laughs> so, if there was a, so if there was a true serum in your veins right now. Apparently there is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Just yes or no questions or whatever do you feel like they lost the bet yes or no well they did lose the bet but they didn't lose the bet because we didn't try hard to make hit television shows and pay them back uh, sadly, they bet on our company and a couple years after they bought us, there was a horrible tragedy. Uh, one of our contestants from, um, Megan once a millionaire who then went on to another one of our spinoffs. I love money came back from that show that was shot in Mexico and was out of our hands. Now he was done the two shows, but he went home and killed his wife. And uh, it was a famous case here a few years ago. He murdered his wife that he had married in Vegas between the shows. And then he, uh, you know, horribly mutilated her body and put her in a dumpster and went on an international manhunt for him and uh, eventually hung himself in Canada. But that incident where a reality contestant had committed a murder uh, was a major, major, it was the iceberg hitting the Titanic. It was bad for everybody who produces reality television. And our company was associated with this guy. Now, not that we had anything to do with what he did in his time, spare time. And that's the problem a little bit with reality television. In fact, any television is, is that these are real people and they, uh, you know, they go on to do unpredictable things, but because he had managed to get through onto our show and then went and committed this horrible crime, uh, VH1 suddenly kind of woke up to the bad publicity and thought, oh my God, our reputation is in the toilet. We're the, we're the channel with the killers on the air. And how did this happen? Why are we doing this trashy television like this? We should clean up our act. And so they stopped buying. VH1 pretty much didn't completely stop buying. They A, started paying a lot less for shows that they did buy from us. And they were actively trying not to buy shows from us because they felt like we were bad news and our profits plummeted. I mean, really plummeted. We were a very successful engine of profits until that incident. And then we went through some very lean years and that flipped the deal for Endemol where they had paid up front for a company that had kind of self-destructed. They went through lean years. You well, yes, you exactly right. I had years. already been paid for the profits that I'm now not making. Um, and that's, so they did lose that bet uh, to answer your question. Okay. So now to my truth serum, your truth serum. <laughs> so Chris Abrego stays, he takes a job as a co-president of uh, Endemol USA. Um, and you go off and you start your own production company, Little Wooden Boat Productions. Yes. How do you come up with that name? <laughs> I'm trying to be intimidating. <laughs> um, I have a little. When I think of boat. little, when I think of little wooden boat, I just think all I think about is the tidy bowl commercial. <laughs> That's not what I was going for. I uh, I have a little wooden boat. I have a um, a twelve foot. 
<laughs> she's majestic. Uh, Beetle Cat, it's called. It's a little single sail sailboat made of cedar wood and pine. And uh, she lives on Martha's Vineyard. And she's my baby, my pride and joy little boat. And uh, it's where I want to be when I'm not working is on my little wooden boat. And now that it's probably the last company I'll ever create, uh, I just wanted to name it after something I loved. So, You know you can afford a bigger boat than 12 feet. <laughs> you know that, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm scared of a bigger boat, though. Just but... check. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I want to ask you, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to mention some people, some things, whatever. I just want you We're to We're free me, associating. I just want you to tell me one thing that pops to mind, the story, some Uh-oh. holy shit moment okay. that nobody knows about. Oh, dear. That will blow our audience away or something that means something to you. Okay. All right. Flava Flav. Uh, sweet, charming man. Really a sweet, charming man. That's the surprising thing about him. And uh, everything he did for us was real. His his engagement with the women, the way he felt about them, uh, for him in the moment was always a very real thing. Bridget Nielsen. Bridget Nielsen was uh, uh, bamboozled us. Uh, we didn't know that she had a live-in boyfriend when we started her show Strange Love with Flavor Flav. We all arrived in Milan with the production company in tow, and we showed up at her door to start filming, and it turns out she had a live-in boyfriend when the entire concept of the show was that Flavor Flav was coming to start a relationship with her. And we were shocked and we thought we were doomed because she had lied to us that she was single and here she was not single and what are we going to do and we just decided to throw Flav in we threw him in the door and he tackled her and hugged her on the ground in front of her boyfriend and turns out the boyfriend was a bit of a wimp I guess and uh, they Flav took her away we took them off to Lake Como together and started that romance which was a very real romance extreme dodgeball uh, we tried to create a real sport. We really thought we had a sport. <laughs> Just like we thought basketball, like we really thought dodgeball, dodgeball was kind of an underground sport. People were playing it, uh, in community centers, adults. I mean, not just kids in schools and adults were playing dodgeball and we tried to create real rules for a real sport. Uh, we had comedy announcers, but we, we were really trying to create something there that would create a league unsuccessfully, apparently. <laughs> Gary Delabate at Howard Stern, Baba Booey. Uh, I love that guy. That guy has a memory like a steel trap. He is one of the most engaging people to talk to, especially if you're a fan of the Howard Stern show. To sit down with that man and hear his stories of things that have happened in that studio is just, he could talk for hours and keep you entertained. He's an amazing uh, font of stories of that show. Howard Stern's New Year's Rotten Eve uh, was I didn't realize it but uh, when I came I moved to LA right after that show and I tr- got a lot of meetings with people but nobody would hire me because of that show and they said that's the show where you had a woman eat maggots and you know we had a lot of crazy stuff on that on that special. I mean, we had one girl's talent was that she masturbated on the set, on the stage in front of everybody. That was her talent in the ta- I thought would have thought that would have been the most horrible thing to happen. But no, apparently the girl came out and they ate maggots. What if she ate maggots and masturbated? It, right. No, that's the only way it would have been worse. But it turns out years later they came out with Fear Factor and eating maggots is nothing. That's nothing. But anyway, I was I was almost persona non grata for having produced a show with uh, a woman eating maggots. 
Keenan Wayans. Uh, genius. We've talked about him at length. I have enormous respect for a him. A story that nobody knows. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, could it be the... Oh, God, I can't, I can't tell that one story. I'm sorry. I can th- let me think of another one. <laughs> Why can't you tell that story? I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's illegal. Start the, drinking the, the vodka. It's illegal behavior. There may have been illegal behavior. I don't know. I love the guy. And uh, the way he ran his writer's room was amazing. He would um, he had index cards up on every surface of the room with subject headers that they were going to write comedy bits about. And he had a great writing system for his writer's room. I learned a lot from it and use it to this day. Awesome. Jenny McCarthy. Uh, story that nobody knows about. God, a story that nobody knows about Jenny. Uh she uh, she flashed me once in the hallway. Uh, she said uh, uh, it was something about uh, whether she was going to do the second season or not. And she ripped open her shirt and said, I didn't get these for nothing. We're going back for season two. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm afraid I can't follow that with any other question. So let's ride off in the sunset here and let's talk about uh, uh, your biggest disappointment professionally. <clears throat> It's the overall idea that I've never done a network hit. Uh, I still, I, I don't know if it matters anymore. I don't even know if kids out there even know the difference between a network and cable show or a, you know, an internet show. It's, there seems to be, everything's blurred now. But when I was coming up, you where you're trying to get to was mass market, big network, NBC, CBS, uh, ABC, or Fox. And although I produced some shows on those channels like Big Deal that wasn't my show, it wasn't that big a hit. I've never been in the club of people who produce the big hit network shows. I've made more money than some of them if you want to you know, measure success that way. But to me, I feel like I haven't achieved really the, the pinnacle, which would be that. Your proudest moment in show business. Well, I was... I guess I was very proud of The Surreal Life. And when it premiered, and it was a network, kind of, the WB. It was kind of a network. And uh, it premiered to success, and I was very proud. And we, we, you know, all of a sudden, People Magazine was doing articles about the show. And I was very, very proud of that show. I really feel like we, it was very difficult to make it happen, and we pulled it off. And, uh, and it went on to be a great, you know, font of, uh, of success for me. Last question. You've seen a lot of artists come up. You've seen a lot of talent come up. And you've seen a lot of executives come up. So it's a two-part question. What advice would you give for the young artist coming up, the young Ryan, the young people that you've seen throughout your time that you've had and you populated your shows, uh, how they can get to the next level, and what advice do you have for the young writer, producer, um creator and what they can do to get to the point where they can get to your level. All right, here, here it is. I hope this works for somebody in the early stages where you're still not known or broken through. You have to be willing to do almost anything to keep the ball moving that don't be too proud to take a low level entry level job. Don't be too proud to work on a show that you, you know, isn't a big network hit. It's a small thing on, you know, Nat Geo or something and you're just a PA or whatever. Don't be too proud. Take a gig, get inside, get noticed. Uh, Also, you never know where the breakthrough is going to come. Like you may 
do better trying to get into a film company, or you may do better trying to be a stand-up or a copywriter for an advertising agency. Try everything you can that's in some kind of space where you want to be, because you never know where it's going to break through. Once you break through, then focus your efforts uh, unfailingly on your goal. So uh, you have to kind of be open-minded about where you break through, and once you do, charge down that path as hard as you can. How's that? Fantastic. (laughs) This has been incredible. I hope you had fun. I did. I had a great time. This has been amazing. This is your first podcast? It is. Yeah. All right. I love the Virgin Podcast. I'm a potter now. You you are you have your own you have your own pod. Um, well, I appreciate it. Uh, I was really honored to have you here, and I know our audience is going to be incredibly inspired by your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barry. It's been great. All right. This has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And as always, if you love the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't love the show. Tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.